You're listening to Life and Leadership, a podcast designed to connect life and leadership today so that you can flourish tomorrow. And now your host, Daniel Kitchell. Welcome everyone to Life and Leadership. This is Pastor Daniel. I want to thank you so much for being with me today, where it's going to be my joy to help you lead with love so you will love to lead. Well, it's been a great first few months with you here on this show, and I have to tell you that my cup is full. I feel so alive when I'm behind this microphone and speaking to you and interviewing great and compelling people. It truly has been the highlight of my year, and I just cannot wait to see where this goes. And so to know that I'm just a small part of your life throughout the week, or if you're taking a walk down the road or a drive down the highway, that you're getting the truth. You're getting stories from people that want to help you. And that brings me just great satisfaction. So thank you for being a part of this journey with me. I cannot wait to see where we head into 2022. I also want to make sure that I express deep gratitude for my church family, the Cross Church of Norman, Oklahoma, without their love and their support of the show. It just would not have happened. They've prayed for me. They've um, stood for me. They've supported me financially. And they are truly a huge part of this show getting going. And so thank you to them. I love them very much. Well, this show is everywhere that you want to listen to your music, your books, or your podcasts. We're all over the place. Check us out on Google Podcasts or Apple. We are also on Spotify, which is a very popular way to listen. Or you can just go to danielkitchell.com and at the website there, you can you can listen and you can also go to the show notes and look at transcripts of things that have been said. There's also links to books and articles from the people I've interviewed. And that truly is a great resource for you as you maybe want to take a deeper dive. And as we always want to do here on this show, let's start with a question, an idea about leadership. And today it's going to be a little bit of both. But I heard a quote recently that said that we are the sum total of the five closest relationships that we have in our life, our five closest friendships. We are the average of that. We are the sum total of that. And when I heard that quote, my mind immediately went back to, you know, 2005, 2006, when MySpace was the social media platform that everybody was using and people had their top five and you'd go to their page and you would see their their top five MySpace friends and leave it to me to make a terrible old school social media reference. But when I heard that quote, I thought about that. I and mean, when you would go to people's MySpace pages, they, they would have their top five and it always felt good to be in someone's top five. Um, but the truth is, is that every one of us, we have our close inner circle of people, people that we have the deepest relationship with who we spend the most time with, who are around in very personal situations. They know us inside and out. And so take a step back and look at your top five and ask yourself, are these people that pour into me, do they give or do they take away? Do they stir my intellect? Do they pray for me? Do they stretch me? Do they grow me? Am I being benefited by being a part of that? Because whether it's good or bad, we are the sum total of the five people that we are the closest to. 
And I love what Jesus would say about this, that there is no greater love than for someone to lay their life down for their friends. And so when we look at our top five, I hope there are people that would give their lives up for us because that is the friends that all of us need around us. We have a tremendous opportunity today as I introduce to you my longtime friend, Rhonda Williams. She's also known as Dr. Rhonda Williams. But as you're going to find out in our conversation, that title to her name, it is not the most important thing about her. Yes, she earned it. She went out and pursued her doctorate in biochemistry. She is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and the University of Central Oklahoma. She has a long storied career with the FBI, working in forensics and DNA analysis and solving crimes out in the field and in the lab. And she has some stories to tell us about that, and we'll get into that. But what you'll find out quickly is that Rhonda's a mom. She is a wife. She's a friend. She's a Christian. And yes, she has an incredible career. But most importantly, she's just a normal person that tries to balance all of that out, tries to navigate the normal struggles of life. And our conversation is going to get into all of that. The talk we have together is wide ranging. Rhonda is going to take us back to her childhood to when she was being raised by a single teenage mom. And she'll walk us through the difficulties that went with that and how her and her mom were able to overcome those. She'll get into her relationship with her largely absent father and how her stepdad came into the picture and really changed her life forever. Additionally, Rhonda's going to let us know that her love for forensics and investigation and solving puzzles started for her at a very early age when she found a dead body in a park. Rhonda's career choices have allowed her to be a part of some incredible investigations, heartbreaking ones as well. And she's going to share those stories with us and they're going to pull us in. And some of them are hard to hear and some of them are difficult for Rhonda to talk about. But the thing that I love most about the stories that she shares is that there's an undercurrent and an essence of hope that Rhonda still has. Even though she's seen the ugliest of things that humanity can do to one another, she still has faith and she still has love in her heart. Rhonda will also pull back the curtain a little bit on her personal life. Just a few years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. She'll take us through that. She'll get into how she has a passion for science, but she also has a deep faith in God and what that looks like as a Christian. If you need some relationship advice, Rhonda has it for you as well. Her and her husband, Kyle, are polar opposites yet they're perfect for each other. And she talks about how they make it work and what it looked like for them when they first started dating and when they decided to get married. And if you're a parent out there, she has a wonderful son named Riley. And she talks about what it's like to raise him in this crazy, crazy world. Rhonda has so much to share for us today. And I just cannot wait for you to hear it. So without further delay, here's my interview with Rhonda Williams. Rhonda, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you on today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for your time. And we're going to go in a lot of different directions today in our conversation. And I think we're always going to run back to the safe spot of the idea of overcoming difficulties in life and rising above your circumstances. And 
And I just can't wait for you to share some stories with us about your life and all the things you've done. You've got some unique perspectives on your career and family. And we're just going to go after all that here uh, together. And so I'm excited about our conversation. And I'm just going to just break the ice. I'm going to shatter the ice with you uh, by just laying it out in front of our audience today that you are uh, you have a passion for, um, you know, just helping other people. And it started at a young age for you. Um, uh, and that came out through, uh, you getting involved in, uh, just being involved in, uh, forensics and, uh, DNA analysis for crime scenes. And you went and chased that career as, uh, in education and all of that, but it started for you at the age of eight <laughs> and you saw your first dead body at the age of eight. And I'd like you just to walk our audience through that moment and how seeing that kind of just propelled you to do what you're doing today. Right. So going back many years to age eight, um, I was at the YMCA getting my swim lessons, which is a great, great thing to do. What city were you in? Um, We were actually stationed at Sunnyvale in California. Okay. Um, And I was at swim lessons and... Noticed a guy laying in the park. Nothing unusual for California. There's bums everywhere. Um, and <laughs> I noticed he had his arms over his head. Right. And I thought, that's how I sleep. And I know I can't sleep that long. I have to move because my arms go numb. And so I decided after class, I'd go check it out. Took my stick, went over there, proceeded to poke him. And he did not move. He was dead. Um, from the neck up, he was blue. So now... You know, I know that he was strangled um, and it was fascinating to me, honestly, fascinating. I wanted to know everything about it. And uh, I noticed around me that the teachers and the the other kids were screaming and crying and it was a big ordeal. And for me, it was exciting and they wouldn't let me stay and they wouldn't let me investigate. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I knew something, something special about me or not special about me (laughs) in this situation that I want this, you know, and I want to be a part of this and it never stopped. Wow. So did you, did you have any other moments in your life before that, where you felt just that leading towards being inquisitive and investigative about things like that before, or was that kind of the defining moment for you? Um, always inquisitive. Yeah about everything. Gotcha. But so all the other kids are running away from the scene, screaming, scared. And there (laughs) you are waiting for the police to show up and, and then you're mad you get kicked out. Yeah. Got sent home. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And so it just started for you there. And, um, and so your, your career right now, and and maybe you can just tell the audience uh, a little bit about like what your degrees in and, and what you did educationally um, as you pursued that passion. Sure. So um, I got my doctorates in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of Oklahoma. And I did that because the FBI recommended that. Mm. So my goal was FBI all the way. I'm going to go work in their DNA lab. I'm going to be this amazing agent um, in the field. And as time went on, I realized that probably wasn't the path I needed to take. Um, I I wanted to be in a crime lab setting. Um, but there's a lot more freedom when you work in a county or a city level than when you're in the FBI. In the FBI, you're you are the person who does this one thing and you're amazing at it. Yeah. But you don't get a lot of cross training and you don't get a lot of other opportunities. Okay. So um that's why I decided not to do that, but I did get the degree. Oh, how long were you in the field? 
would you say like working actual crime scene? Um, about seven years, seven years. Gotcha. And now you're a professor. Yes. And tell us where you, uh, what classrooms, where your classrooms are and who you teach and what you're all about there. Um, so I teach at the university of central Oklahoma. I'm an associate professor there in the forensic science department. Okay. And, uh, I love it. I love teaching these students. Um, I love watching their passion unfold. Right. Um, it's just something I've always done. I've taught for over 10 years. Um, but I knew that the full-time status was coming. Yeah. I knew it was something on my heart that I was being pressed to do. That's good. That's good. So eight years old, you see your first dead body. It, it just lights this fire inside of you to go and pursue this career and you were just set on that. That's what you wanted to do with your life. But it always, it wasn't always easy for you uh, as a kid. And your your upbringing was was tough. And and I want to let, let you just speak to that to our our audience today about you, your childhood and and what that looked like at, even at a very young age before that incident happened with the the dead body in the park at the YMCA. <laughs> right. So um, I grew up with um, a teenage mother. And, um, that was hard, you know, watching her try to make her path in life and mm. also try to raise me while she's growing up herself. Right. Um, and my biological father was not really in the picture. Mm. So, um, she, she did the best she could and, and it was hard and we definitely went without on a lot of things. But the amazing thing about her is that she made it, mm. she got out of that path. She got out of that cycle. Um, and she went into the military and she, you know, retired and she's doing well now as a contractor right. for the military. And the whole time she was going through this, she was pushing me, Yeah, which at the time I was very irritated with her because she pushed me really hard, <laughs> of course, um, but of course. Uh, she pushed me, you know, to realize that I can do whatever I want to do. Mm. I set my mind to it. I'm going to do it. And it doesn't matter that you know, I'm a female or that I came from a very poor background. Um, that's, that's irrelevant. Yeah. So your mom, how old was she when she had you? 16. 16. What do you, what do you think the hardest thing about being the child of a teenage mom was like, what are you looking back on that? What was the d most difficult part? Um, I think that I put a lot of guilt on myself, mm. um, that she didn't have the life that her friends did. Oh yeah. You know, they got to go out and be reckless and, you know, party and enjoy life. And she had me. So mm -hmm. I felt like, Oh, I'm a ball and chain here at home. Yeah. Like, and, and I felt that. Right. And I know she didn't intend that, but I felt that. Sure. And, you know, I, I wrecked a lot of fun things for her because, <laughs> you know, you right. got this kid at home. Sure. Sure. Well, and in your, your dad, um, was, you know, largely absent. Is yes. that correct? And definitely talk, talk us through that. And so he was uh, an alcoholic and a drug addict, and um, he never really got over any of that. Mm. And so up until the day he died, he was still, you know, doing these things. And he had, you know, three other children besides myself. And, you know, they also missed out on having a great father figure in their right, life. And, right. they, and they weren't as lucky as I was. Mm. You know, I got a stepfather who came in and took over. And that was the best, best gift I could have sure. gotten. Yeah. It um it makes a difference when you have that male figure that can really really guide you and steer you and help you. Um, I I know that 
I know that firsthand to not have that um, growing up in kind of the same situation. Um, so describe, you know, when you say, you know, I, and I know when, when we say the word poor, you know, I, I feel like I grew up poor. I feel like there were some times when, and then, you know, my, you know, or, you know, late, you know, single digit years in my early teens where, um, a lot of times, you know, we, the food that we ate was the church, the church gave it to us. Um, that's, and so I felt the weight of just sometimes not even knowing where food was going to come from or what was next. And so when you say poor and I say poor, like what, what did that, what did that look like for you growing up? Um, it looked like shopping at Goodwill. Um, it looked like, uh, some nights and my mom making it fun, of course. So I didn't really realize it till later, but let's mm. have baby food for dinner tonight. Oh, cause they always give baby food away because they, they want babies to be healthy and yeah. be fed properly. And they didn't give a lot of other stuff away. And so we, we would take that and we'd, we'd have a night of it. We'd eat some baby food for dinner. Where, where did you get the baby food you said? Um, wherever was wherever. handing it out. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wherever we were living at the time. So that was, a. Uh kind of a dinner for you with your mom and she just kind of made it fun and try to make it seem a little normal. Yeah. Right. Wow. So talk to anybody, you know, out there that, you know, I think a lot of kids and, and I've seen this firsthand just being in the public school system for many years, a lot of kids would just completely homes that are obliterated, um, poor, um, no mom around, no dad around, whatever it might be. What what do you what do you think the main thing was that just kept you going in those early years, especially? What do you think it was? Uh, it was definitely my mom. Yeah. I mean, she she never gave up, right? She right. just kept pushing harder and right. striving to be better. Sure, and that pushed me. Right. So, and a, a lot of times I felt like we were sisters, mm. and she was the older sister, so she had the wisdom and all the power. Um, but sometimes I had to rein her back in and, and I had to tell her, you know, this isn't a good thing for us. This isn't a good place for us. And, you know, we, we together got through life and yeah. decided where we were going to end up. And that's really good. That's really good. And I think, you know, it's, um, a lot of times in life we, you know, we look at, you know, we look at families that are struggling and it's, it's easy to, to use our poverty or our divorced parents or, our alcoholic father as a reason to do really dumb stuff and, and, a just kind of an excuse to, to not be successful. And for me, you know, seeing those things in my home, being poor, um, parents both struggling with alcoholism for me, it became a, a reason to be successful, that I was going to rise above it, that it was going to be something that was going to be a, a platform for me to, stand on and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to break that cycle. Um, and so I, I feel that. Do you want to say anything else about that at all, about your childhood or anything that um, you think would bring a little life to our listeners? Yeah, I think that it would have been helpful to have more of a supportive background, you know, grandparents, uncles and aunts, Yeah. because um, they can kind of help you through that. And because we were in the military, we didn't have that. We were always moving. Um but when I look back upon it, I know if we had stayed where we were at, mm. that we would have never broken that cycle. Yeah, sure. That's good. Well, so 
I know a lot of people uh, right now in our society, you know, they're they're and we're kind of shifting gears a little bit here to talk more just about your career and what your special your specialty is. And a lot of people in life right now, they're really kind of obsessed with this true crime stuff and and investigative, you know, shows and things like that. And and so I want to just, you know, go there for a little bit with you and and talk about some of the things you saw in the field. Uh out there, you know, trying to get samples, trying to solve, you know, crimes, put the puzzle piece together, whatever you want to say and and talk about that. But I think the question I want to ask you before we get there is why do you think um, the obsession is there for people in regards to this? Like there is a true um, culture out there of people that are just really into the solving of crime and um, the podcasts out there are just everywhere. What do you think? It, what is it? What do you think it's uh what space is that going to in people's lives to, to really kind of create that culture? I think that people are fascinated by people that are maybe, I don't even want to say evil, but people that are just yeah. not right, mm. that snap, that have, you know, one bad day. Um, they're fascinated by because we know as humans that that could happen. Yeah. We all know that we have that tendency to like, just let go and, mm. It's, it's frightening. And so when you watch it and you see it, it's, it is fascinating Mm. and uh, especially more fascinating if you can relate to it. Right. And so um, I get stopped in the grocery store. I get stopped wherever I go. Like, oh, you're a forensic scientist. Like if I'm wearing something that might show that, or if they, you know, I meet a friend and they're like, she's a forensic scientist. This is so cool. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, it is. But (laughs) when you're doing it for 15 years, it is my job. Right. So, you know, the coolness factor has worn off. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, so what, uh, what is one of the biggest stereotypes that needs to be broken about what people see on TV or what they hear on a podcast or whatever? Tell What's the stereotype that needs to just go away? Um, I think the main thing is that you are going to investigate something at the crime scene. Then you're going to take it back to the lab. You're going to work it. You're going to talk to the suspects and the victim's family, and you're right. gonna, you're just gonna be the person to solve this case. And it's not. It is teamwork. Yeah. It is ten different units working together as one mm. to come to an answer. Right. Um, so there's not one person that's gonna be getting the glory for this. Yeah, and I'm sure the the work that you see depicted in Hollywood, it, it appears like you know just so flashy and you know and all. <laughs> and Very. I'm seeing your eyes roll right now as I <laughs> ask that question. But um, at the end of the day, for you, it was work and it was hard work and, yeah. and draining work. And so tell us about some of the most difficult cases that you worked that, you know, I think you said you were down in Houston, uh, spending a big part of your time down there on the crime scene. Yes. So what were some of the hardest cases you worked? So, like I said, if if it's personal to you, mm. um, it, it touches your heart a lot more than if it's something that you can't really relate to. Right. So. You know, I was never in a gang and I never, never got involved in gang activity. And <laughs> whenever I'd go to a gang shooting, um, mm. it, it was sad. Like, you know, somebody lost their life, but it didn't touch me in a way that I, that I took with me. Yeah. And, um, so as I got older and I had a child of my own, the, the scenes that had children did mm. not used to affect me. I mean, they were sad and, and it hurt for me to be there, but I didn't take that home. Yeah. And as soon as I had my own child, the scenes um, that had children, um, they broke my heart. And 
they were really hard for me to process. Yeah. How hard for you to process is um, kind of where I want to go with that. And so, you know, we probably think, oh, this one particular crime scene stood out to you because of, you know, it was just, you know, spectacular in a sense of like, you know, get, get everybody's attention or whatever. But what, what would you say is the one that like, it's just left a mark on you that you're just never going to be able to get over or forget or, or whatever. So uh, when I think about one of the ones that touched me the most, um, it was a girl who was taken in by a close friend Mm. um, because the mother was an alcoholic and drug addict and she knew that she could not provide for her child. And so her friend um, had just gotten a really big payout from Greyhound. And so she had a lot of extra money and she knew that she could provide for this child who was, I think she was about 13. Right. Um, and so she took her in and the, the one downfall I think of the, the woman winning this lawsuit and getting money was that she stayed in the same poor neighborhood that she lived in. Right. And she shows up one day with twin Corvettes and mm. that draws attention. Yeah. And so what happened was, you know, this girl came into this, house hoping to have a better life, hoping to have someone that's stable and ends up getting murdered because, um, people in the neighborhood wanted what they had inside. Yeah. And, um, that was hard for me. That was hard for me to go in there and see this woman who agreed to take over this girl's, you know, parenting and then to find the girl hiding under the bed. And, you know, I have to process this and I have Mm -hmm. to go in there and I have to get her from underneath there and I have to See if I can. So she, the girl was hiding under the bed. Yeah. When she was killed. And so that, that hurt because I knew that that mom had given her up to this woman to take care of her. And that's not what happened. Mm. Mm. Any, any other cases that are just, have just completely um, stuck with you? that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, there was another one, um, with a child, uh, who I guess the, uh, babysitter had taken away. And I don't know, I don't remember the circumstances if it was a ransom type thing, or if it was just an unstable person, but she took this boy away from his home and she killed him and she set him on fire Mm. and you know, he was unrecognizable. So when we got there, I mean, there's, you know, I'm, talking to the analyst on the, on the phone, who's there and I'm not actually physically there and I'm getting these photos, um, later on and I'm looking at this and it, I I don't know if I could have processed that scene. I don't know if I could have even held it together for that. And that's when we started finding out that some of our staff cannot, um, really work a case like that. Yeah. Especially if you have children at home, it's, it's very hard to keep yourself calm under pressure when your emotions are coming. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I, and, and I, I think it's really important to note to our listeners that, you know, you had this shift that happened when your son Riley was born and things changed a lot for you just in the, you know, just, just how you viewed things and the connection there and things didn't feel, things probably didn't feel so distant, right? you know, and, and I think that's worth, worth saying there. And, and this is probably one of the bigger questions that I want you to really uncover for us today is like, how do you, 
when you watch all and see all the ugly things that humans have done to each other in your, in your field, and you see all the atrocities that happen and the hurt that people cause others and the murder and the, just the, the ravaging of, of people and homes. How do you, how do you still have hope in the world? And where does that come from for you? And t- talk us, talk to us about that. Well, I think, you know, as long as we are human and we have free will, we're all going to fall short. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, I'm catching people on their worst day. Right? Oh, wow. That's a good point. And, um, it's good. I can't judge them for that worst day because mm. I don't know what lead led up to that day. Yeah. Um, but what gives me hope and gives me peace is the families that I see and that I would see at crime scenes or that I would see later on in the courtroom, how strong they were mm. after losing a loved one in a horrific way. Yeah. Um, and how they seem to just still hold on to their faith and, yeah. you know, hope and humanity and that. That was like, geez, you know, I had a bad day yesterday. I got a flat tire and I'm really mad about it, but I didn't lose my son. Yeah. Mm. And so um, that's kind of how I. Perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, I mean, there has to be um, seeing things like that. There has to be like residual effects for you. Um, Maybe some, you know, PTSD, emotional distress. And how has that looked for you? Um, so, you know, the first five, six years of crime scene work, I was fine. Mm. I mean, I thought I was fine. Right. (laughs) And, uh, I didn't have any issues. I'm tough. You know, I got this and, um, I'd have certain analysts, you know, on my team that would come up and tell me that they were having some struggles, having some troubles that Mm. they might need to leave the team. This is a lot. And I was just like weak, you know, like, you got, you guys should be fine. Right. It's like, you just distance yourself. It's fine. Mm. And when I moved and left Houston and came back to Oklahoma, um, I thought I was fine. And then, you know, I went to a taco truck to get some tacos and had a flashback because one of the crime scenes I had done was in a taco truck and there was a glass tip jar that they had shot him through. And I saw that glass tip jar and this taco truck and it brought me right back to that moment. Mm. It brought me back to his body, the blood, you know, every the glass, everything. And it felt really, really real in that moment. So mm. needless to say, I didn't get any tacos. I mean, I, I took them home, <laughs> wow. but I didn't eat them. Yeah. And that's when I knew that like, this doesn't go away. Right. Like this is something that is going to be triggered for the rest of my life. And I just have to know how to, to deal with that when it, when it comes to the front. Yeah. How do you deal with it? Good question. Um, basically I, I pray about it Mm. and I have open dialogue with people that have been in the same situation as me. Yeah, that's good. And we talk about it and we, we bond over it and that's helped me a lot. Mm. Any, um, other effects you feel like some of the things you've seen that, um, how they, they have a ripple in your life today and that you can speak to. Um, I think just, I guess me trusting, um, my son going places and oh, doing yeah. things and being around people. Um, I try not to be a worrying 
helicopter mom. Um, <laughs> You're probably one of those drone moms that, right? you know, hovers <laughs> and flies everywhere over the top of his head. I got you. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, people look really great on the surface. Yeah. And then you find out later on that they're not who they said they were. Mm. And so, you know, I do watch my son more than, than some probably. Yeah. And, you know, he stayed the night at like two people's houses ever and he's nine. So, and I know those people very intimately. Yeah, right? right. So, um, I think that's part of it. It's yeah. just it's made you more cautious, very, right? very cautious, very paranoid, yeah. um, in ways, but I try to rein it in. Right. I don't want it to dictate my life and definitely not dictate my son's sure, life. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I, I just think it's a great testimony to talk about how you have seen human beings at their worst on their worst day. and I know you personally and I've known you for a long time and and I think you do have an undercurrent of joy about you and it's uh I'm sure it's not always easy to have that joy when you've seen the things you've seen and seen how people have acted towards one another and how they treated one another and uh and I know uh one of the other aspects of your career that I think will really help people is you you're kind of a a, a rare find in your field in the sense that you're female and uh, you know, uh, it's a, probably a field that's, I'm assuming, is do- dominated by men. Used and to be. Used to be, yeah. yeah when we, you first started, was that the case? Kind oh, of? yeah. I mean, yeah. before there was a lot of forensics-type programs, we were doing, you know, majors in science and hard mm. science, so biology and chemistry and physics, and those are traditionally, you know, man degrees. and Man degrees. Man degrees. <laughs> and... uh you know, and so we had this push for women in science and, and encouragement from people um, telling girls, like, you can do this too. You right. can do math. You can do science. You can do whatever anyone else can do. So we had that push. Um, the field was dominated by men. Right. And when I started my um, master's program, I would say, um, first, I I noticed that and I felt that. And I noticed that I wasn't taken as seriously. Mm. And I also noticed that the women that were taken seriously didn't have any families. Mm. So like they had to dedicate their every bit of life to this laboratory, to teaching, to research. Wow. And if they were married, they usually were divorced Mm. um, because I feel like we had to prove a little bit more. We had to do a little bit more. And, um, I'm I'm happy to say that's not the case yeah. right now. Well, and it's uh, it was almost like it was a an unspoken rule that you couldn't have both right. a family and a career. Did you feel that? Oh yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't be successful if you were married with kids and and you wanted to do what you were doing. Yes, I definitely felt that. How did you? How did did they? Was that ever verbalized or was it just kind of an assumed thing in your field? What do you think? It was an assumed um, thing because. Yeah. You know, the men traditionally aren't taking care of children, so they're coming to work every day. And if their kid's sick, their wife's at home. And Mm. that's the kind of freedom they had. Um, And I just felt it. I felt it. And I saw it. And I thought, you know what? I hope this is changing. Yeah. I hope this is something that we are going to break the glass ceiling on. Yeah. And we have. So it's you feel like in. You, even just in your time, it's changed a bunch. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. What do you think the main thing that's changed for for women in in that field is? What do you think's happened? Um, I don't know exactly what's happened other than this really positive recruitment of women in science. Oh yeah. And funding and grants and just a a big passion. Yeah. You know, I know several female 
um, scientists that took me under their wing and really pushed me to do my best and to not worry about, you know, the older professors that were men that were just like, oh, she's sweet, like my daughter. And, <laughs> you know, she's not a real scientist, but she's, oh. she's nice enough, right? Wow. And uh, I felt that, that it was changing at that point, right? When I, and this was, I was in college in the 90s. Yeah. And so we're old people. We're very old, <laughs> 90s and early 2000s. And, yeah. I, and I did feel a shift. And now I'll tell you in the forensics community, um, we are 70% female. Wow. And I don't know why that is. Um, I'm not sure, but. <laughs> so there has been this dramatic shift. I mean, yes. And because it, it seems like it was an intentional thing to, to promote that. Yeah. And that's a, that's awesome. So you, I think in our pre-interview talk, you talked, you discussed how you, you felt like you had to, as a female, you had to kind of prove your worth. Oh, definitely. And, and what, what did that, what did that look like to prove it? Um, I just felt like I had to do that much more. Um, yeah. Everything I did, I felt like I, I couldn't be myself. Mm. I couldn't be my same bubbly, fun self. I had to be this serious woman mm. that talked about science. And and I completely did a change whenever I had to give a talk or I had to be in a meeting or I felt like it wasn't okay to be me. Mm. And uh, that was hard to get the respect. And even then, I don't know that I really gained a whole respect from everybody. Um, but once you show them what you can do and you publish, which that's what they love in academia is publishing. Yeah. Um, if, once you publish, once you show them, there's not a lot they can say. <laughs> so Right. And you have published. So yes. you have a book and tell us about the book you have published. Pretty big book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but big book with uh, no income coming to me, um, but lots of love for the field. Um, yeah. So I have a book on um, crime scene um, DNA collection on decedents. Sure. And uh, that book was a wonderful, wonderful thing that I did on my maternity leave. And uh, I loved having that book, even though I wasn't paid for it, because <laughs> um, I got to use it. And I use it this day in my teaching. Right. Um, and I would never have had those photos any other way. Wow. So, so it's a book of a lot of different photos of things that you've seen you've worked. Yes. Wow. Like hard photos. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when you, when you look at that book that you were a part of publishing, I mean, obviously it's, it's a sense of pride there, but you know, behind every one of those photos is a story. Oh yeah. You, and it comes back immediately yeah. when you see it, the smells, the mm. sounds, the environment, um, the family, if I saw them, mm. like it all comes back. So I don't open that book often. Yeah. We'll link to that book in the show notes if people want to, you know, go to Amazon and just see what it looks like. And it's kind of an expensive book because it's a textbook. It right? is. So it is. So you can look at the free photos that the Amazon yeah. lets you see. Well, and we, we're not going to like give it out as a promotional material or anything like no. that here, you know, but but we'll link to it in the show notes so you can um, check that out to see what Rhonda's um, had published. And uh, But that's a big accomplishment for you, you know, and I mean, not many people can say that. And uh, and I've, I've checked the book out a little bit and, and it's, it's obviously was a, an amazing undertaking to pull all that together. And, uh, it's awesome. And you should be getting paid for it. That's right? what I think. Right. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anything else you would like want to say, um, to any women that are listening to this show about that might feel that, that inferiority stuff that's still around so many places that anything you'd like to say about that? Um, I, I would say. First and foremost is to find a, a female mentor. Yeah. 
um, someone that's going to have your back. And a lot of us women, um, not just in careers, but in life, we tend to be very competitive with each other, very critical of each Mm -hmm. other. And that's really not helpful. No. And I, I refuse to be that person. Um, when I find a student, um, that really has a drive and a passion, I want to help them any way I can. Yeah. And I want to push them forward to success because their success is my success. And that's something that we need to think about as, as a gender, you know, I mean, why do you want to tear other women down? Mm. That doesn't, that doesn't help us as a group. And I think that just being that mentor for them and the person to come to with questions and concerns is a lot of them don't have that. That's good. That's good advice. Having a mentor, someone that's got your back. It's really good. I, I, you know, my wife talks a lot about just how women, you know, really do struggle with comparison and being competitive. And, um, what do you, what do you think the, the biggest thing that a female can do to pull themselves out of that? where that's not their mindset to walk into a room and think, Oh, I'm not as this as her or that as her or whatever. I mean, what do you, what can you say to that? I think uh, all of us as females, when we, when we come into a group setting, we should be accepting, we should be understanding Mm. and we shouldn't be judgmental. And it's, it's easy to say because you'll see some women that come into the room that you really you want to say some things about, <laughs> and you just have to realize that we're all different places. Yeah. We're all in different versions of ourself. And I think that that doesn't help anyone Sure, when you're critiquing them and making yourself feel better. Yeah. Um, it just makes you look tacky. Mm. And, you know, I, I try not to be that person, you know, and I try not to let other people around me be that person. Sure. So we need to stand up for each other and hold each other yeah. up. So help each other out, you know, and, and I think men, it's not like we're off the hook here. You know, <laughs> we have other problems, you know, <laughs> other things that we, we struggle with. We want to outdo each other. You know, we want to be hyper competitive, whatever yeah. we can speak to. But I, I, I love the idea of celebrating other people and, and making sure that, you know, people know you love them, you support them. And there's not just this idea of like, how can I be better than them or, how they're better than me. And and I think it's been so well said that comparison is the thief of it, just the thief of joy. Yeah. And when you're comparing, you're not going to have joy. And yeah. uh, anything else about that for uh, just, you know, to our, our female listeners at all? Um, definitely don't compare yourself to other moms. Uh, <laughs> We're all different and yeah. we've all been given different kids with oh, different yeah. uh, challenges. Yeah. Right. And so, I, I see these moms that look like they have it all together they and, don't. and their kids, their <laughs> kids are great and well-behaved and mine is just the terror. And I, I wonder like, am I doing this wrong? Yeah. And then, you know, life progresses and, right. and these kids are not perfect and great. Like yeah. they all have their challenges. It's just win. Sure. Well, and I think it, I love what you said in the sense of every kid's different, you know, and most of the time people are, you know, whether at a soccer match or, on Facebook or whatever it might be, they've got their best foot forward and you don't know what it looks like when they get in the minivan to go home or or what it's like before bedtime or whatever. But I love it. That's, that's incredible advice. You know, don't compare um, your parenting skills to others because uh, everybody has a different kid Yep. and your kid is definitely a handful. I I know that. So, so are mine, but 
<laughs> well, I want to just, before we kind of transition to um, some more just personal things to uh, really try to connect with people, um, you know, being in the field of science, um, like you have been and, and being so well-educated in that and being a Christian uh, in our society today with COVID and all the things going on, you keep hearing these terms, trust the science, trust the science. And there's a big debate, uh, you know, just about all of that. I mean, it's there and it's, it's tense. And yeah. being a Christian, being in the field of science, how how has that gone for you? And and how do you, um, you know, balance all that out and, and, and have faith and do your job and all the things that go with it? Um, it's, it's a challenge. I'll tell you when I was in graduate school, I had a really great, great research project. I was finding amazing things and I went to go present it at a conference for a competition at Oklahoma Mm -hmm. Christian. And the title of my talk was evolution of this GAA repeat. Mm -hmm. And which is what this is for Friedrich's ataxia. So it's, it's a genetic disorder. Okay. Got it. And so I'm just making sure I understand what you're talking about because you're the, you're the smartest person in the room right now. (laughs) (laughs) On some things. Yeah. Um, So I thought, you know, I'm going to get a student award. This is going to be so great. Mm. And I didn't even make like the top three. Oh. And uh, afterwards they, the the good thing is that they were willing to critique us and give us some feedback. And uh, one of the professors just said, uh, evolution never happened. Mm. So your project, although you did a lot of work, it's invalid. Yeah. And I thought in my mind going, I, I've shown the science. I have the data and it doesn't bother me as a Christian. Why yeah. does it bother you? Mm. Um, why can't these two things go hand in hand? You yeah. know, God is here. He's created earth. It doesn't mean he didn't set evolution in, into history long, long ago. We don't, you know, we can't see that far back. Yeah. And I just... I just choose to accept and have faith. And so a lot of people in the science community don't. A lot mm. of people in the science community um, do not believe that there is a God. And it's because of our personalities, I think. Yeah. We're very critical. Mm. We want evidence. We want to see things. And that, you can't quantify that, the yeah. faith and hope that you have. Wow. I I think that sometimes in, in our world today that there's a hard line drawn. And you sense it where it's like, well, you can't have both. You can't, you can't believe in God and you can't believe in science. And there's even like this, this tone almost of like science and God are equal and you better pick one. And I feel that. I think that I saw that in some of my time and even in when I was going to college and like they're, they're competing against one another and that somehow they're equal. And, um, and I just, I think a lot of people feel that the weight of that. Um, but it's just not the case. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that anything we're finding out is because he wants us to. Mm. That's so good. Anything we're finding out is because he wants us to. So God made science. Yeah, you believe that? Oh yeah, yeah. So and he also has all the answers that we're still looking for. It'd be nice right. if he give us a nice little blueprint of everything, but <laughs> we have to figure it out on our own. We have yeah. free will, right? Yeah. So go find it out yourself. I, I'm reminded of a story when I was going to OU university of Oklahoma and I was a freshman and I was taking a geology class and the professor, the very first day of the class made it very clear to everybody that he was an atheist, that 
he did not believe in God and that he was going to come from that perspective. And, and I was, you know, I was this little, you know, I was this, you know, pipsqueak freshman from <laughs> noble Oklahoma. And I'm sitting in this class with 300 people and I'd never heard anybody say anything like that in my life. And uh, it made me a little uncomfortable. And, but I loved the fact that he said something and admitted something that I didn't expect him to admit. And what he said was, he said, science, we can explain a lot of things and we can connect dots and we can do all of the things that go along with that. But he said, we cannot tell you how it all started. And he said, that's our problem. Yeah. And he, he admitted that to the class. And I was just kind of, I was shocked. Like he said that we know how the dominoes have fallen, but we don't know who pushed the domino down basically. Right. Or where the dominoes came from. <laughs> you exactly. know, so what, what do you think about that, that story and um, in relation to all, all the things, you know, and all your education? Yeah, I think everything was put into place and we were the next phase in his plan, right? Mm. And we're going to set up earth and I'm going to bring my son down mm. and we're going to try this out and see if if they learn from this. And yeah. everything I've had planted along the way is going to be there to help them and guide yeah. them. They just have to find it. Yeah, that's really good. I love thinking about the fact that God is gives us the brain and the hands and the feet to to go and and explore what he's put out there for us. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of joy that, that comes from that. And any, any other final thoughts about just science and your faith and Christianity you'd like to share? I just love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love science. I love concrete things. Yeah. Um, but I'm also open to yeah. the unknown, right. And, yeah. and faith. So. And I love the word faith. I think that you said it earlier that people just in your field, a lot of them just, that is not something that that is not a word they use. It's just not there. Right. Right. And um, well, let's, um, you know, I want to just kind of go a more personal route with you. And um, and, and you kind of scratched the surface of it a little bit with, um, you know, with your family and the fact that you were in this career that basically was saying you can't have a great family life and, and also be successful in this field. Right. Um, and so I want to talk to you about your family and, um, how you maintain as professionalism, all the professionalism you're involved in, all the, the career you're in, and how you f- keep that passion for your family. So talk to us about that in just a general sense. Um, I think, you know, my husband, when I met him, I thought, oh, man, this guy, uh, he was in the military. I yeah. grew up in the military. His name's Kyle, by the way. Yeah. So if you hear us say the word Kyle. This guy. Kyle. This guy, yeah. Um. I, I had sworn off the military from my life. Because mm. um, your parents were both parents, in the military. Yep. Moved around a bunch as a kid. Moved around my whole life. Never had a sense of home. Mm. Um, and I didn't want that for my life. And I didn't want that for my child's life. Yeah. And so, you know, all my friends from the military, I'm still in contact with them to this day. Um, a lot of them went that path. They went to the military. It's comfortable. It's what we know. Sure. And I refused and I would not date anybody in the military. Mm. It's like not doing this. And uh, I meet Kyle and he's just gotten out of the military. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, he's just got out. So that's safe. I could talk <laughs> to him. But, you know, the caveat being I'm moving to Houston in three weeks Yeah, because I've got a job. going to go work for the medical examiner. This is great. This is my future. Mm. And I meet this guy and he's like no guy I've ever met before. You know, he's just 
soft spoken, um, looks burly on the outside, yeah. looks like a little cranky. Um, but <laughs> on the inside, that's not who he is at yeah. all. And, uh, I thought, you know, this is really bad timing. And he, at the same time is about to get deployed to Iraq. Mm. And I'm like, wait, I thought you were out of the military. Like what's going on? He's like, well, I'm in the reserves. So, um, we just decided, you know, let's just keep it casual. Right. And I'm going to Houston, you're going to Iraq and you know, nothing's going to happen here. Well, that's probably when God was like, eh, change of plans. And he canceled his orders to Iraq. Nobody was getting orders canceled at that point in time. They needed soldiers over there. Wow. And his orders got canceled. And we were like, uh-oh, what do we do now? And so, you know, we did the long distance relationship. Yeah. Um, and he ended up moving down to Houston. And then, of course, got deployed to Iraq later. So then I was already stuck, right? I was yeah. already hooked. And so... <laughs> um, he was gone for, you know, about nine months and then, um, he went back again and it was a really hard thing for me to deal with. It was a hard struggle. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I still got to do my job. I still doing my forensics. I got to do what I wanted to do and he wasn't affecting my life in the way of making me move or do something I didn't want to do. Sure. Um, but obviously him being gone was hard. Yeah. And so I told him, you know, if we're going to be together and this is going to be a relationship and we're going to have a child and get married. Um, this can't be part of the equation. Yeah. And, you know, he gave that up and and he was in the military for 14 years. Mm. So to stop at that point is hard. And I wish that I didn't have to mm. give him that uh, choice to make. But I mean, I just couldn't see a child being raised with him gone and doing all that. And I know people all over the world do this, Yeah, but I went through it. And I just didn't, I couldn't. Right. So I was like, you have to make a choice. And, and if you want to keep doing it, we just won't have a child. Because yeah. I really didn't really want yeah. a child. I'll tell you that. You uh, can handle it by yourself, <laughs> but to have a, a child to raise would be tough. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did he respond when you kind of laid that out there in front of him? Um, You know, at that point in time, he was pretty burnt out mm. himself. And uh, he he did get out. And he did some private contracting. So that was kind of our compromise yeah, was he good. was going over there as a private contractor. Um, but I said, you know, once once we have a child, you can't be gone because I have crime scenes at two in the morning. Mm. And we live in Houston with nobody. We have no family. So I need somebody to be home. And I'll tell you what, he took on that role mm. of being that dad, that stay-at-home dad. Um, he worked, but he worked a lot less than I did. Yeah. And he took care of... Riley, my son, um, more than I did. Wow. 100%. That's awesome. So I don't want to make this the Kyle show. We don't want to stroke his ego too much, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but I think that it does speak life to people that are in your similar situation. And they're, they love somebody. They're, they're trying to make things work. And they're trying to figure out, hey, is, is this worth it? Is, it? is it who I'm supposed to be with? And what am I going to overcome here to try to make this happen? And, um, and so, you know, you, you have this affectionate love for Kyle, um, but you both were very different. Oh, very, very different opposites, opposites. And, and I think people need to hear that story, that part of the story, just because I think it, people are facing similar situations. Yeah. And yeah. Tell us about that. I got asked the question several times by many people, including his own mother, 
Um, what are you doing with my husband? Or my, I keep saying my husband. <laughs> you're good. What are you doing with my son? Yeah. Um, you you have your doctorates. You're the successful person. And my son hasn't even been to college. Mm. My son is a military guy. He's, you know, he's just this calm, relaxed kind of guy. He's not going to be coming to your banquets and parties. And he's not going to wear a suit. Like, he's just not going to fit into your world. Right. And I, I, I can be farther from the truth because there's no way that that's my world. Mm. Like we like to judge people on their degrees yeah. and their status in life. Like if you're, you're a doctor, you should be hang, hanging out with fancy other doctors mm. and your life should be about what people see on the outside. And that's just not, not who I am. And that's not who Kyle is. And, you know, the one thing that I did worry about was never me being with him. I worried about him feeling inferior being with myself right? because of what society says yeah. and, you know, making more money or being the more social dominating type personality. Mm-hmm. Um, is he okay with that? Is he comfortable with that? And he is, he's secure with his manhood. He's fine with all things that are me. And some men are not, they're just not secure enough to have a woman like that in their life. Yeah. And uh, especially to take over the child rearing part of it, mm. you know, and he did. And, and I, anyone who knows him now and knows us knows that like, it's a weird match. <laughs> it's a weird one, but um, it works yeah. and it's great. It works. That's good. And I think you said that he's like, you describe him as a gentle giant. He is a gentle giant. Yeah. Yes. And secure, completely okay with maybe not even being the breadwinner mm-hmm. in the home. And yeah. You said it so well that it's society that creates these constructs of that can't be the case. Right. And then men feel like, oh, I'm, I'm a failure or whatever. And it's just not true. No. It's just not. And anything else about Kyle and in, in regards to that you'd like to share? Uh, just say he's great. Yeah. You know, he, he didn't have a father in his life mm-hmm. either. And uh, you wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. By watching the way he raises Riley. Yeah. He really steps up and he's tough. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's soft. And, mm. you know, you need to have all sides of that. Yeah. And a lot of dads just focus on the tough. Yeah. And he he, he does both. Respect, kindness, mm-hmm. toughness. They're all things that need to be taught to our sons. Yeah. I really want to make sure that people heard um, just the little caveat you gave that people were looking at you as this, you know, person with a doctorate and this incredible career. And then the people look at Kyle, he's in the military, he's been all over the world, you know, he's in and out and people just make judgment calls based upon that. And we just got to be very careful with that. You know, just judging people by the letters that are after their name or not after their name. And it's just such a, it's just such a horrible way to view people. Yeah. To label them like that. Yeah. And my old boss told me um, uh, this phrase that I'll never forget. She said that I'm the most unassuming doctorate oh. person she's yeah. ever met. And I like that. Right. <laughs> That's good. I want people to not look at me and be like, oh, she's smart and she has a doctorate. I right. want them to look at me and be like, how in the world does she have a doctorate? Mm. You know, because I don't need to put on pretenses or airs or be anything that I'm not. Right. And, you know, I have my really dumb moments in life with some <laughs> common sense issues. And I'm just like everyone else. Yeah. I'm just really smart in science, 
you know. <laughs> we'll bring Kyle on sometime. He can talk about your lack of common sense uh, in some he, areas. He, and directions. And directions. <laughs> That's good. Well, I think that, you know, I I think it's a beautiful thing because it's it sounds like both of you you really support one another and your different fields. I know he's a with the, you know, the sheriff's department now in our County here Mm -hmm. and you're doing what you're doing and you just celebrate each other. You're not in competition to each other. Right. hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's just the way it goes. My wife is an artist and uh, I'm a pastor and we just support each other. We celebrate each other. We, make sure we both have the things we need to be successful in our careers and the things we're trying to do with our lives. And, um, and I think when you do that and you maintain that little bit of uh, maybe individuality is not the right word, but just your own traits and characteristics and what you're good at and you celebrate those, you help them grow those things. Yeah. It's a, that's when some magic can happen in your marriage. Yeah. It really is. He's one of my biggest cheerleaders. Yeah. You gotta have it. You gotta have it. Even if it means difficulty for, his part of our marriage and what he has to pick up the slack on. Sure. He's still there. Well, he was one of your biggest cheerleaders through um, one of your more difficult times. And you had a cancer diagnosis. Yes. 2019. Mm -hmm. And I know the impact that had on him. Um, But tell us about your diagnosis and a little bit about that and how you're doing now, all the things you went through there. Yeah. So I went to my 40 year old mammogram checkup, you know, that one you're supposed to do. Mm no family history of breast cancer whatsoever and come out with, Oh yeah, it looks like maybe you got a touch of the breast cancer. Mm. And I was just like the way that they just casually told me no counseling, no doctor to even talk to me. It was like the x-ray tech guy that, you know, did the analysis. I don't know what he did. And I just left there thinking what in the world? Like I'm healthy. I am. I eat right. I exercise. Mm. I'm a healthy person. I don't even get sick. Like I don't even, I've never had strep. I don't get headaches. I'm just not a sick person. Mm. And then here I am with breast cancer and had to have surgery, had to have radiation, um, had to have a second surgery because they didn't quite get the borders that they were looking for. Um, And I refused to let that set me back. Like, I think I missed a total of four days of work. Like Mm. I am, just not going to let this define me. Right. And I also was very private about it. Right. You know, I didn't, you knew about it, of course, yeah. as my pastor, but you know, I just kind of kept it private between my family and myself. And that's how I chose to deal with it. Sure. And, um, I had in the meantime, friends around me that also got diagnosed early in their forties and mm. they, some of them needed it to be like broadcast on Facebook with thousands of people. Right. And, and that's how they chose to deal with it. Sure. And I'm not mad at them. Um, that's just not how I chose to tackle it. Um, and, you know, it's it was hard. It was hard to to think that you're healthy, but your body's trying to kill you. Mm. It's, it's a hard thing to kind of even understand. And that maybe it comes back, maybe it doesn't. Um, I've had over two years of successful checkups. Great so to hear. Hope we continue that. <laughs> yeah, right. What do you think you learned through all of that? What's the thing that you and your husband, your family learned about yourself? Um, I that? think it was um, the importance of family mm-hmm. because you have friends. Everyone's got friends. Everyone's got acquaintances and they're right. like, Oh, prayers. Love you. And right. you don't ever hear from them. <sighs> they don't bring you dinner. They don't check on you. They just 
you know, oh, that's something she's going through. Let's mm-hmm. leave her alone to, and you start realizing who the people that really care for you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my family. That was my husband. Now, of course, Riley was too young at that point for him to really understand what was going on. Right. Um, but my husband, uh, my stepdad, who's, I mean, my biggest cheerleader, mm-hmm. I think he even beats Kyle, my husband. Yeah. Um, but just being there for me every day, talking to me and making sure that I don't have to fight and focus on things that aren't important Mm. so I can just focus on healing. I hope everybody heard what you said because it was your immediate response was you just learned the importance of family and having that in your life. And I think whenever you are going through the darkest times is when you really do learn who is going to stand with you. And everybody loves to be your friend when things are going great Yeah, and the sun's (laughs) shining and there's no sickness and there's money in your pocket and all that. But I love to hear it. Family, family became the just, just more important than it ever could have been. Um, you could ever have imagined. Um, anything else uh, just about your your cancer diagnosis and, and well, getting through that and overcoming that? That is why um, I chose to switch my career. Yeah. Um, you know, I have always taught as a part time thing, and I've always had this last couple of years had this pressure coming from above that I need to be <laughs> the teaching pressure more. from above. I like it. Do you love that? Yeah. Uh, I need to be doing more. And I'm like, look, I'm teaching three classes and I'm working full time. I can't do any more. Right. And he's like, yeah, you can, you can teach full time. Mm. And so that's uncomfortable. I'm a, I'm in a state job. I was doing wonderful. I'm a DNA analyst and I'm doing all this wonderful work and I'm changing lives and I'm doing great things and the work's easy and life's comfortable. And you want to like pull me out of that and put me into a new environment. That's not going to be as comfortable that it's going to make me work hard again. And it was hard to think about it. Yeah. Um, but I just kept getting signs that that's what I need to be doing. And when I, when I got my diagnosis, I knew that that would free up more time for my family. Right. And I would have summers off with my son and I just decided that like the job came open, then it's what it's sh- supposed to happen. Right. Yeah. And so when it did come open and it was that time, the timing was right. And I, I took it. That's good. That just your, your cancer diagnosis and getting through that, put you where you are today Yeah. and maybe would not have happened had you not gone through that. Right. Is that fair to say? Yep. Yeah. Well, I, as I've talked to you, um, I've heard you, you know, you talk about overcoming, you know, just difficulties in childhood, um, just getting through school, um, kind of breaking through the barriers of your, your family and, and just, um, doing things that no one had ever done. And, and your, you know, in your family, um, you, um, you know, you get into a field where you have to overcome the, uh, just the stereotype of, of being a female in your field and, and. Um, and so I hear this theme of overcoming just all through your message and even so much just when you decided that, you know, Kyle was going to be your husband and that's what you're going to do and overcoming things there to, um, getting through and this cancer diagnosis and fighting through that. I mean, it's just the theme there for you. And I want to read the scripture to you because I think it's a great closing for us. And, and. I want to just see what you, you know, what your response to it might be today. But, but Jesus just said in, in John 16, 33, he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, 
but take heart because I have overcome the world. And the theme of your life, what, what does that verse mean to you when I read that? Um, I feel like all things are possible mm. as long as I'm looking above yeah. for my answers. Right. Amen. So it's good. And I know I prayed for, um, always wanted to have a family, you know, as in I wanted a mom and dad mm. and I got that and, yeah. and I got the best dad that ever could have been given. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to have a family of my own. And now I have this husband that supports me hundred percent. And I have this son who's just amazing. You know, mm. he's, he's a lot of trouble, but he's amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that, and I have the career. So, yeah. you know, I have everything that I need for a successful life and I just need to keep going and yeah. looking above for direction. And I think it's just so amazing to make sure we understand that you have experienced a ton of success, but there's also, as Jesus said there, there's been trouble. There's been hardship. None of us are exempt from that, but it's about going forward. And as you said, just keeping your eyes fixed on above. And that's a powerful statement. So my kind of final thought for you is just in your field, seeing all the things that you've seen and, and seeing humanity just again at their worst and, and all the things that go with that. Um, how do you, how do you speak some life here at the end to, to maintain your hope and to know that you can have hope that, you know, this world isn't all entirely bad. Right. Um, after all the things you've seen. Yeah. So all the, all the horrible crime scenes I've been to and cases that I've seen, um, they hurt and and society hurts from them. But I think that the way that we rally afterwards mm. shows that, you know, we're not all that way. And right. even the people that have done wrong and they've, they've had this incident in their life, a lot of them repent and they come back to God as well. And yeah. I think that all of us can be saved. Right. Right. And that all of us have a story we can tell. That's good. That's going to help. Those around us. That's good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us. You were so gracious and uh, just transparent and honest. And I know that uh, you're going to help many with just through your stories. And I just want to leave it with you uh, to close. And is there anything you'd like to to say and uh, tie up any loose ends or anything else on your heart as we we finish? I want to tell all the women out there. You could do it. Yeah. Uh, don't let anything hold you back. And to all the men out there, support your women. That's good. Hey, what a great way to end it. Rhonda, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I can't wait to see um, how this show just impacts many. Thanks. Wow. What a conversation that was with Rhonda Williams. She shared some stories with us that we are never going to be able to forget. But the biggest impact that I felt when I interviewed her was that we saw her intelligence, her wisdom, and her knowledge on full display, but it was also paired with perseverance, with humility, with hope, and with faith, and with love. And that undercurrent was there in her life. When I got done interviewing Rhonda and I was processing our conversation, The one thing that kept coming up to the surface for me was this. Every time an obstacle, a difficulty, or a setback 
was placed in front of her. She never, ever quit. She just kept moving forward. She scaled the obstacle. She was able to overcome the setback and she kept moving forward. And that is so inspirational for me. And I hope it's so inspirational for all of you. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. I cannot wait until we're together again. Until next time, it's always going to be my joy to help you lead with love so you will love to lead. Thank you for listening to Life and Leadership with Daniel Kitchell. We hope that you're with us again next time as we connect life and leadership today so that you can flourish tomorrow.